Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. I'm Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, Boxes, featuring Josh Mugel. Hello, welcome to MDASH. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start by having you introduce yourself um, with your name, what name you want to be called, and what pronouns you like people to refer to you using. Sure. My name is Josh. Last name's Mugel. It rhymes with Bugle, um, which is a question a lot of people ask me when I go by he, him. So you are a clinician? I am, and an educator. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about your identities, what identities you bring with you, your clinician, educator, any other identities that are important to you? Well, I guess that kind of gets to the heart of the, the question. Uh, <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you asked me to be on this, um, you know, you, you, you said this would be a conversation about health identities, which made me kind of ask what... <laughs> like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? I mean, in, in just general, um, identities in, um, in general, it's like, you know, what do I identify as? What is my um, healthcare identity? Um, and I, I don't know if this has something to do with... Um, my my fairly religious upbringing, but I, I kind of balk at anybody asking me to identify myself or to um, label myself a certain way or to you know just 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 call myself a, a certain thing. And so I, I don't you know again I don't know if that's it's from from a religious upbringing or not, but I, I kind of get the sense that or I, I guess my opinion is that um, no matter what I identify as or what I um, say my identity is, it doesn't really matter in the long run because what I do matters. And so I think people are going to say, I I think you can judge somebody's identity a lot more in hindsight by the the evidence of their life than by what they call themselves. That's interesting. Okay, so I'm going to push you a little bit and I'm going to ask a question. Do you identify as white or are you white? I I am white, yeah. And... Do you identify as cisgender heterosexual? Um, well, I, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I, yes, I do identify as, as cis. I mean, I, I, I would classically fit into the category of, of cisgender and heterosexual. So the reason why I was asking is I'm wondering if, because so, you were saying you don't think identity necessarily matters as much as like what you do and people can judge it afterwards. And I'm wondering if some of that is... And I could be totally off base. Is it the is it because you you're not holding identities that you've had to fight to hold? And I think that's a very real possibility, uh, very very much so. But I also like to think that it's you know part of it is you know I mean talk about sexuality for a minute. Part of it is that um, my views on my own sexuality have grown and changed um, so much throughout my life that. Um, I, I think part of it is, is I mean, like you said, maybe that I haven't had to fight for an identity or fight for, you know, I haven't been marginalized at all and, and you know, based on, on an aspect of myself. But I think part of it is I don't want to limit myself either. You know, I don't want to say, interesting well, you know, to this point, I have not slept with, you know, um, men. I've only slept with women, but, you know, maybe something about my 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 life will change that, you know, or maybe I'll meet somebody where I say, Hey, you know, I, I do want to sleep with a, uh, you know, certain individual, you know, person. And, 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 you know, so I, I think, you know, again, you know, it's looking at the evidence that I've only slept with women. Yes. That makes me heterosexual um, in hindsight, but 
do I call myself heterosexual? I mean, for easy labeling purposes, yes, but do I want to always be labeled that way? Not necessarily. That's a great insight. Um, I was talking with someone on a podcast uh, just two days ago, and we were talking about the fluidity of sexuality uh-huh. and that there's so much, I think when we're younger, there can be this tendency to, you have to go in a box. And then as we get older, it's like, yeah, I really don't like that box. I think I want to, I mean, I'm in that box, but I'm open to other boxes. And I I learned so much of that, I think, from my kids, Um, you know, and and, um, both, you know, I I think it's a generational thing so much. And I was raised, again, very, you know, fairly strict and fairly, you know, rigid. Um, And I did not raise my kids that way, but, you know, just seeing their views on their own sexuality, on their own um, types of attraction. You know, my son, for example, um, I've, you know, even watching him grow up and and, and seeing the types of people he had crushes on and and trying to identify, is this, you know, is he going to be straight? Is he going to be gay? Is he going to, you know, what? Um, He always surprised us and he always just had attractions to individuals. And so I could never easily classify him growing up and I could never... Um, in not only in terms of sexuality, but in terms of his whole life and his whole ambition and his whole career choices. You know, anytime I tried to sit there and predict what might happen with him, he always surprised me and always kind of, uh, kind of came up with something that I never even expected. And I That's th- so cool. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think, I think one of the most fundamentally changing things for me has been being a parent. And not only just being a parent, but being a parent to my children, my specific children, because they are so um, unique and so insightful. And I think raising them has given me a lot of insight into, oh, I don't have to view the world in this, you know, fairly um, orthodox way or this fairly, you know, kind of narrow way. And, and, and he, he has surprised me in a lot of ways. And, you know, I want to give myself the potential or the possibility of surprising myself as well. It's really amazing when we can learn from our kids. Yeah, um, yeah. That's my. That's honestly, if you ask me an identity, being a father is one of my core things that I say that has been purposeful and meaningful, and that is something that has been a a, a foundational part of my life. That's so cool. And kids change us. I mean, I I often joked when my son was younger that the universe kind of delivers you the challenges that you need to kind of learn from. So I used to be painfully shy and hated anything that might be embarrassing. And so uh, I become the mother to a child with Tourette's and coprolalia <laughs> who screams fuck on an airplane. And it was like, yeah, no, I needed to learn that lesson. Like, yeah. does it matter what people think? Right. Um, and I've learned more from my kid than I did in grad school. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I've learned a lot. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, not just with the kids, but my career choice, I think, has changed me a lot, too. I mean, if, if you'd asked me, you know, in my 20s, if I was more introverted or extroverted, I would say easily, I was much more introverted and withdrawn person. But as I became a physician and especially an emergency physician where I have to interact with people, um, you know, multiple people every few minutes and I have to make an instant connection with them and convey empathy and um, education. I mean, it's, it's very, just the habits I've picked up from that have really made me much more extroverted. And so whether I, you know, myself identify, for example, as an introvert or an extrovert, the evidence would say that, you know, the people who are around me on a day-to-day basis, even my wife would say, yeah, you're much more extroverted um, than not, even though I feel like an introvert in my heart. 
That's really cool. Well, and it speaks to the difference between identity and behavior. Right. So well, just because someone identifies as something, yeah, it doesn't mean their behavior. Is yeah, I, I guess that's the crux of my point is like, I think we are our behavior. And so whatever we identify as and whatever we want to say we are, you know, in our mind, our behavior is, is kind of a reflection of the outside world. So I could say I'm a serial killer in my mind, but if I don't actually kill anybody, <laughs> right. if I don't kill anybody then I don't think the world would say I'm a serial killer. You know, right. so I think, I think, you know, how we think about ourselves and how we, you know, imagine ourselves, but what we actually do um, are, are, you know, usually congruent, but not not always. When I talk with clinicians about taking a sexual history, uh, you know, one of the things that I see new clinicians do is if a patient says that they're married, um, they're, they don't ask as many questions. And so when I ask follow-up questions to the clinician, it's usually they make some assumptions about what that identity of married means. They, they make a lot of assumptions about it. Yeah. And so, yeah. so now I've learned to say, okay, how many of you know someone who identifies as married? And how many of you know, you know someone who identifies as married and they had sex with someone other than their spouse? Right. So I'm like, identity and behavior are not necessarily right. the same thing. Right, right, yeah. And I think the other point to that is we, we just have to allow ourselves room to, to, to grow and change. And I think that's the, the biggest learning point from me is that I have... You know, I had some very fairly rigid views of who I was growing up or in my young adulthood, and I have changed so drastically on so many fronts and opinions and behaviors that it's hard for me to, to commit to, you know, this is my identity and, and not anticipate that it will change in the next five, 10 years anyway. Does that feel freeing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I don't ever want to. I mean, I think my biggest fear in life is knowing where I'm going to be, you know, exactly in 20 years, you know, and I hate the predictability and I hate, you know, I, I think predictability is death, you know, where if, if I knew exactly where I was going to be in 20 years on a Thursday, then, you know, what's the point of actually doing it and, and getting to that point? So I, I want the, the change and the unpredictability in my life. Well, and the unpredictable, the love of unpredictability fits with your career choice also, yeah, because I imagine very... every day is different. Right, exactly. And in learning. So, I mean, the, the, the reason I went into emergency medicine is the unpredictability of it, the excitement of it. But no matter how long I do it, I feel like I'm going to still be learning something new on a, on a pretty regular basis. And so it keeps me intellectually stimulated, keeps me, you know, interested and keeps me engaged. And so I think to me, that's I'm going to be engaged 20 years from now in a very real and intellectual way um, in ways that I might not be in, in, a, in another career. So one of the things I love asking people is, you know, about how something about them makes them different when they're interacting with a healthcare professional. And so you are a healthcare professional when you've had to go, let's say you had to go to an emergency department or interact with healthcare. How does the fact that you're a physician shape your experience as a patient? That is a good question. I have to think about it for a minute. So, I mean, to, 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 to be truthful, I luckily have not been a patient for, you know, in a lot of circumstances. So I haven't had any major illnesses. I haven't had to um, visit the emergency department since I was a child. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's amazing. It is. Well, and, and part of it is, you know, I, I kind of know what the limitations of medicine are, too. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm educated. And maybe, that, maybe that's the answer to your question is that. Um, you know, I know the limitations of medicine and the limitations to doctors. So I'm not going to, you know, seek um, involvement in the in, in medical care for for most of my life because I 
I just, I, I think there are certain limitations to it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's probably the, the answer more than anything. Um, when I do have to interact with, with, um, you know, medicine, I, I really try to not interact with the healthcare system as a physician, you know, I, I, I want to be, you know, you know, like for example, I had a, I had a doctor's appointment today with my um, family practice doctor. It was a new appointment. I'm new to the area. And, and honestly, I don't know, you know, I'm an emergency physician. I don't know what the screening things I need are as a, you know, as a 40 something man, I don't know, you know, what kind of blood tests I need uh, on an ongoing or daily basis and, and whatnot. So I'm, I'm very deferential um, to another person's expertise when it comes to my health, because I don't want to, I don't want them to take it for granted that I know what I'm talking about in, in a field other than emergency medicine. So, um, I, I, I try to just act like a patient. I try to say, you know, what do I need? You know, educate me. Um, and, you know, tell me what I, I need to be doing differently with my, my life and my habits. And, you know, that's the approach I take when I have physicians who are my patients. Um, I, I think early on in my career, I, I was fairly intimidated you know, as a young doctor to, you know, have a doctor as my patient come in and, you know, be worried about what they think of me, be worried about, you know, are, are they judging my decision-making capabilities? Are they judging my bedside manner? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, from my experience, they probably just want to be treated like a patient. So I will treat a doctor just like other patients. I will be calm. I'll be compassionate. I'll use simple language. I won't, um, you know, I won't go into, you know, detail, assuming they know anything and I'll, you know, you know, involve them in the decision-making like I would anybody. Is it different when you're interacting with healthcare as a parent? Um, not again, you laughed, it, which makes me think that it is a little bit. And now you're like, <laughs> no, it, it, again, I think more, I'm thinking of a specific time when my daughter had some belly pain and I was trying to avoid taking her to the doctor. So I think it, <laughs> exactly. So I think it, again, it's more of my, a decision when to involve the healthcare system rather than Got it. Uh, my interaction with them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you're doing I'm, a pre-screen at home. Well, exactly. Exactly. Which is not the right way to do it. Um, you know, you should, you know, when it comes to one of your loved ones health, you should, you know, I should be very much, you know, I'm going to step out of this decision-making, but. Well, but I, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true though. I think when you're, when you're talking about doing a pre-screen about whether or not you need to interact with healthcare, I mean, we know that there is overuse of emergency departments. Right. And so if you have the education and the knowledge to know how to avoid an unnecessary, I mean, I'm sure if your child's leg was severed in a, right, right. by a farming implement, you would not be like, let's just wait and see. You're just using good, good decision-making as a parent in right. addition to your clinical judgment. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, we're biased, you know, it, it's our own kids. And so our judgment, I think, can be flawed um, and, you know, for, for better or for worse. And, you know, again, I've, I've had an episode where my daughter had some pretty bad belly pain and I was pretty unimpressed by it. And, you know, I'm a very, you know, yeah, I've seen it all kind of doctor. And so I was like, oh, this is nothing. And this is nothing. This is nothing. Then finally, three days later, I was like, oh shit, I missed something. Oh, <laughs> I no. to get her in right away. And, you know, it was, you know, something fairly benign and I overreacted both times, you know, I overreacted and then overreacted. And, and you know, so, so I think that that's what happens is, you know, we, we do this pre-screening 
Um, but then it's, we, we realized, oh, this is my family member who I love very much. And maybe my judgment's wrong. And maybe all my years of training is awful. And, you know, we start second guessing ourselves and, um, or at least that's how I do it. And then, you know, we kind of swing the pendulum way over to the other side. So I think our ability to clearly judge a situation when it comes to our own children, um, gets, gets, gets tainted, gets colored. Yeah, I would agree. I'm a, I'm a horrible mom of a patient. So Grayson's been open about this on, on Twitter before. So he has chronic hep B. And so we've interacted with healthcare forever and ever and ever. Um, and I would like chart his blood work, um, on a little spreadsheet and like super, super anal retentive, just charting it. Cause I was curious about it. Um, and I would always ask tons of questions and they were always like, Oh my God, you asked so many questions. And, um, but, but I, he, we found out that he had a selective IGA deficiency cause I kept charting stuff. And so I kept saying, there's this one number that's always zero. What does it mean? <laughs> Finally, they were like, Holy crap. He has a selective IGA deficiency which is clinically insignificant. It doesn't affect his life. Um, but well, you know. it didn't matter after all. Right. It, did, right. it didn't matter after all, um, right. but I drove him just nuts. And so right. I've learned from that experience, don't hyper-focus on data because you can waste time on things that are clinically insignificant. Um, well, and I think, you know, and again, this is more from experience. I think you know, patients like that as a physician, when patients come to me like that and they, they're hyper-focused on data, <laughs> Um, it makes me, or I think it will make most clinicians, um, worry that that person is dissatisfied with the care. You yeah. know, it's not just that you're, you know, you're just a very attentive parent and you're going over the data and you're, you're being very good about your, your child's care. It's that you're, you're questioning, you know, the process, right. which makes, you know, for better or for worse, I think it'll make a, a clinician somewhat defensive. And the reaction to that defensive feeling is to order a lot more tests. And we right, know that it's bad for patient care, right? So, yeah. so I, think, yeah, I was so lucky I, because he was uh, in a clinical trial, just an observational longitudinal study, first at Hopkins and then followed at NIH. And so we had really great clinicians who did not go order a bunch of tests, like, and who knew that I kind of nerded out on research stuff. And so um, they were infinitely patient, like super sweet, but, but no, didn't order more tests. They, well, each each time good. they were like, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and I wasn't worried. It was more like, why is this number zero? So right. I think, um, yeah, I think it would, it would definitely make other clinicians nervous. So I've learned to be a lot quieter mm-hmm. Um about like if something's like interesting to me from a nerdy perspective, I just nerd out on it alone. Um, right. And if I'm worried, I'll ask the clinician, but I don't want to bother them. I do. I, I have found too that you know people who know I'm a, a physician um, tend to you know go overboard, and I'm like, please don't. You know, I, I'd rather you not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I really, really you know would rather you not. And, you know, treat me like any other patient. Um, I, I was I was traveling once with my wife when my daughter was staying, she was a teenager, staying home alone, and she cut her hand fairly badly. And then I have not go to the emergency department, which is fine. She just needed a few stitches in her hand. But I got, you know, I was on the plane. And by the time I got, I got off the plane, I had 20 voice messages from various, you know, <laughs> in on her, and they were giving her referral to hand specialists and all this. And I was like, she got a few stitches. You know? like, <laughs> like, honestly, if I didn't even know until I came home, I would have been fine with that. You know, it's That's like, we didn't, 
level of, you know, worry. I'm just not a worrier. And I think, um, I, I guess some people kind of assume that when it's your own child, when you're a physician, you are going to be a worrier. I think some of it too is how much faith you have in the clinicians. I mean, I've always been lucky on the mom side of things that my son's had amazing clinicians. I've had great clinicians. My wife had great clinicians um, and, you know, didn't, didn't really worry. Like there, you know, there are things you can control and there are things you can't. And I don't worry about, I try not to worry about the things that I can't control, which is pretty much everything in the universe. So. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of where I fall on the spectrum too. And, you know, and and that's, I, I feel the same way about my health or my family's health. And it's like, if I have an issue, I obviously want to try to resolve that issue. But at some point there's limits to what we can do. And there's, you know, the inevitability of aging and death and, you know, and injury. And I get that too, you know, so it's, yeah, you know, it's you hard. You can't, you can't live life avoiding risk, you know, so you do no. as best you can and you deal with the consequences and, you know, try to mitigate it as best you can, but without affecting your quality of life. So when you look at how you've talked a lot about how you've changed over the years, mm-hmm. how do you think you've changed medicine as a result of being a doctor? I have never presumed that my influence has been large enough to change medicine. Um, I think that I have been fortunate to have a profound impact on a number of patients' lives. And I think I've been fortunate enough to have a profound impact on a number of learners' lives. Um, And so I, I, if you ask me how I've impacted other physicians or my patients, that's an easier question to answer. If you ask me how I've impacted medicine, I have no, no, you know, preconception that I, I'm, I'm that important to have impacted, so, impacted medicine. So what is medicine then? Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, I guess when I, when you, when you ask that question, you know, how have I impacted medicine to me, you're asking me how I've impacted the global practice of of caring for patients, hmm. whether that's the science or the art or the humanity of it, um, you know, the behaviors of doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers as a whole, um, whether it's through science or through behaviors or through the types of tests we order. I mean, that's when, when you asked me that question, that was my idea hmm. of what medicine is. Interesting. Yeah, because as you're talking about the care you provide and the education you provide, it, it seems like from an outsider perspective that everything you're doing is changing medicine as it's being practiced by you, you know, because I, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking little M medicine, not big yeah, M. Yeah, I, 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 I get the difference in, in the question. And, and you're right. I mean, I'm educating people. I'm changing, you know, the course of people's lives um for sure and so I, I don't downplay that impact but am i changing how people practice fundamentally or how medicine is practiced you know or how patients are cared for globally no i mean <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of bit it, it's kind yeah, of a yeah, huge thing to accomplish i'm not that important of a person <laughs> i don't know who you thought you were getting on this podcast but it um... <laughs> No, no, no. I knew exactly who I was getting on this podcast because I follow you on Twitter and I see the influence you have there in a community within med Twitter. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what, 
what led you to get so engaged in social media and what do you get out of it? I think you're going to be disappointed with the answer. Oh, awesome. I can't wait. <laughs> um, you know, frankly, the, the answer was a very practical one um, uh, in terms of what led me to get engaged specifically on Twitter is that um, it was, I wanted to um, become more well-known as a, a leader in clinical training so that I could recruit better quality candidates to where I was training at. So it was almost a marketing, you know, kind of thing. So I wanted to say, Hey, um, you know, specifically, I think I first joined when I published a, a paper in, in the New England journal. And so I wanted to kind of get that paper out there a little bit more. Um, so that's why I first joined. And then um, once I started engaging more and more people, it started having an impact on um you know, when I had to recruit people to the program I was working at, you know, I wanted to say, hey, here's the cool things we're doing at our program, or hey, here are the um, reasons you should, you know, come join with us. And so the, the reason I initially got engaged was that, um, you know, I wanted just to, to promote myself and promote the program um, for career development, but also to recruit better people to the, 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 the place I was training at. Um, I think it's obviously grown a lot more beyond that. I mean, I think that's still going to be a benefit of it to me is that I am, I'm starting a brand new training program. And I think one of the biggest challenges any brand new pr training program is going to have is getting the word out and, and, and recruiting high quality candidates. And I think the fact that I have a fairly large social media presence will improve that capability. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely using it for that, that purpose, but I think like, you know, any social media, I think, you know, the, the value of anybody, the social media is, is human interaction. And I think that has been the benefit, um, I've continued to get out of it is, you know, why are we on Facebook or why do we, you know, go to parties? Why do we interact with people? And, you know, I think a lot of it is the, um, is, is that kind of value, you know, I get an endorphin rush when people, you know, interact with me and like my posts and, you know, you know, say nice things about me. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a human thing. I, I like to get good feedback and, um, I, and then the other part of it is I've, I've learned quite a bit and been exposed to quite a wide range of opinion and thought that I wouldn't have been um, just living where I live, you know, when you're confining your social interaction to just the people in your immediate vicinity, then, you know, I'm not going to get exposed, for example, to, um, you know, how patients like to be talked about or educated or how members of a community that I don't normally interact with like to be talked about or the, the issues that are important to them and, and, and whatnot. And so I think being exposed to a wider range of people has, been very educational to me. And I'll, I'll give an example of that. I, like early on, on Twitter, um, I made a fairly benign comment about, um, and, and it wasn't even about a patient or anything like that, just about sickle cell disease. Um, and, you know, it's something I see, you know, I see patients with sickle cell um, disease fairly commonly in the emergency department. And I, I made some pretty benign comment about it, and I don't even remember what, but there was such a vocal and harsh and immediate reaction to that that post it informed me that there was a lot of sensitivity around 
um, patients that have sickle cell disease and how their pain is is treated, and especially because there's a racial component mm-hmm. to it. Um, and and I mean, I was aware of those things, but I think just being exposed to how um, how immediate and strong the reaction was, I, I mean, I just I hadn't been aware of the intensity of that um, of the feelings and the hurt and the um, background of of how patients with sickle cell disease had been treated or how they perceived they had been treated. And so I think just to me that 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 simple interaction there and the intensity of it gave me a lot of insight. Um, into how how people with this disease are are treated or how they perceive they are treated, and I just wasn't even aware of that intensity before. And so I think just being on Twitter and having that kind of interaction is a very very educational one um, to me because uh, you know I wouldn't have had that kind of insight without without Twitter. When you engage with patients and colleagues and and fellow professionals alike, really consistently and positively, but also in a really genuine way on Twitter. And it's something that's always impressed me about, about yeah. your, your tweets is you're very real. Have there ever been moments where you wish that you weren't on Twitter? Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, um, I, 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 that is not a purposeful thing. I don't sit there with the intention of saying I'm going to be, you know, real and expose myself um, and my emotions and and you know be genuine. You know, I, I don't go in there saying I'm my my Twitter persona is genuine, genuine, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, I think that's just kind of how I live my life. Um, and I think most people who know me would say that I'm a fairly open and genuine and kind of lay it all on the line person, um, which I, that's just who I am. That's how I live my life. And clearly this has gotten me in trouble, <laughs> well, not only on Twitter, but also in life. You know, sometimes when you, when you, you know, say how you feel pretty obviously, or you are clear with how you feel or clear with your opinions, then there's, you know, usually a time and a place for those kinds of things. And so I've been a fairly um, you know, like I said, fairly open person with my life and, you know, this is who I am. And if you don't want to hire me, don't hire me kind of thing. But there've been situations both on Twitter and in, in real life where, you know, professionally that has not been the smartest thing and I've gotten reprimanded or even if it's not an official reprimand, there have been times where I think the opinion of the people who I worked for or around, you know, kind of change towards me. It's like, uh, you know, Josh is a little bit of a, of a, a person to be watched, you know, kind of thing. And so the, you know, I think, I think people have, have, you know, especially usually my supervisors have, have felt like they needed to, to, to monitor me a little bit. It's tough when it's the person who supervises you, right? Like I, um, I've been lucky in that I have always been, you know, I'm exactly who I am all the time, whether it's, whether it's Twitter or in real life, which is both good and bad for the people I work for. And so, you know, if I'm not loving something that's going on um, at my institution, I'm not shy about trying to call them in because I do know that doing that publicly often gets a quicker reaction than doing it privately. Um, But I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) Well, you know, and there's also just picking your battles. I mean, there might be things that your institution does that you don't love, but they do a lot of things you do love. Absolutely. So you, then you're ruining your chance of, you know, being involved in the exactly. bigger picture. Exactly. 
Well, and that's a learning process too. It's like you don't have to, you know. And I think I think this is a thing, a le- the lesson most of Twitter could take. <laughs> it's like you don't to, you don't have to fight every single battle. No, you know? and yeah. I think sometimes people aren't very strategic. Uh, you know, I watch right. people just. It's fascinating just watching when people dig dig in on something. Right. And uh, right. I I took a lot of flack this week because you know nurses were slamming ANA for not endorsing Biden. And I'm actually fine with ANA or AMA not endorsing any candidate, but instead saying how their positions and policies line up with the code of ethics. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a big leap. Um, But I certainly heard from people in nursing who are like, you're not pushing ANA to go far enough. It's like, no, I'm actually pushing them to do something that is completely reasonable and will also achieve the same goal. Um, But I think it's easier for people to just, um, you know, take the most extreme end of, of something. So the other, the other thing I think, you know, is as much as a, you know, kind of broad public forum as this is, you know, uh, I'm also interacting with Twitter on people who have personal, you know, close relationships, yeah. whether it's my children or a close coworker or, or whatnot. And so as open as I want to be about my life, you know, sometimes the things I talk about aren't mine to really mm-hmm. talk. about, And so I need to be, careful i have been in the past careless sometimes with that you know not willing but you know i that's just again who i am and to, i need to be more cautious when i am you know talking about my co-workers at this job when you know my co-workers at this job are also on twitter or whatever it is you know kind of mm-hmm. and, and i need to be careful that um yeah that i'm just not i'm not be, being open for them mm-hmm. yeah i run everything that i tweet that mentions my son, I run by him. And I've done that for years. Um, I, my son is not very responsive to texting all the time. So that would be a huge delay for me. So I have to <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So that you mentioned um, your son. So your pin tweet, I love your pin tweet. Um, mm-hmm. And you talk about all the things that you've accomplished in the past decade. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned a lot of accomplishments and you mentioned being published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is huge, and uh, witnessing Ebola, your kids graduating from high school, going to college. Um, And and you also mentioned that your son came out as trans. How have your interactions with healthcare providers been when it comes to that issue, if you feel comfortable talking about it? If you don't, you don't have to, and we can cut this. Again, I think this is one of the areas where I'm very proud of my son. Um, he is much more engaged and happy with his life than I've ever seen him growing up. And so I think this has been such a positive change, um, or not a change, but his, his, his transition has been such a positive impact on his life that I couldn't have been happier for him. But that being said, you know, this is his life and I, I try to be, um, you know, he's not at all hesitant to, to, to mention this or talk about it, but I try to be respectful sure. of his life. I want to um, talk about him without his. Oh yeah. No, I don't want to talk about him at all. Right. But, but the point is I, I'm not super, you know, I'm not shy about it, but I'm also not sitting there, you know, being very open that I am a, you know, parent of a, a, a transgender child. And so I think unless it comes up, most people don't know. Um, you know, specifically that, that I have somebody very close to me who is transgender. And so I have been witness to, you know, 
people who have maybe made not snarky, but not also supportive comments about transgender um, rights or individuals, or if you have a patient who um, maybe doesn't look traditionally, you know, one gender or the other, you know, I, I overheard certain comments about, um, you know, that, that, that healthcare providers might make. And so um, it is, I, I, my point is, I think, I, I think sometimes in that environment, people will say things around me that they wouldn't say around me necessarily I had a transgender child. Um, and so, so what do you do? Uh, well, I've never been a super confrontational person. Um, obviously, this is a very intensely personal thing to me, too. So on this, some um, most of the time, um, I will be educational. And that's kind of how I tend to deal with it. Um, and, and the same has happened when, you know, matters of, you know, race have come up, when, when people will make some aside comment about the riots that are going on down in Atlanta or anything. And, you know, I think my natural reaction when I want to confront somebody is to kind of do it as an educator mm-hmm. and say, oh, you know, how would you feel if you had lived in this sort of environment or you had been seeing people who look like you being killed mm-hmm. on a fairly regular basis? Or what would you do, you know, if you feel like you could not advocate for yourself in any other way? And so I do the same thing with, you know, if I hear a nurse, you know, use the wrong pronouns on a patient or, you know, kind of make a comment about their looks, then I will, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to gently educate and correct, assuming that the provider that I have overheard, you know, my assumption is that they are a good person and that they want the best for their patients. And so I will operate under that assumption and um, um, try to educate them, you know, accordingly. Is that hard? It's not, I don't think it's any harder than educating on a lot of things, you know, in, in life. I mean, we have patients who are, you know, um, who who misuse medications and, and and drugs or patients who make a lot of lifestyle choices that that affect their health um, and so you know I, I think there's many many situations and things that we see in the emergency department that we haven't lived you know truths that we haven't lived in our lives or things that we might judge differently if it were in our family members or friends but you know we have to take care of these patients and and, and provide them with good care so I think educating somebody on how to um, take care of a patient with a mental illness or educating them on how to best care for somebody who has a substance use um, problem um, is just as challenging but also important as when somebody says something about, you know, a, a transgender patient or, you know, something like that. So when you think about healthcare in general, so healthcare systems, what are your hopes for all of your kids in terms of how healthcare will be different 10 years from now? Well, I mean, I think this kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation. I mean, I think my kids were born into privilege. I mean, obviously, my transgender son will have issues that I hope um, for him specifically can can get resolved. But we're fortunate, like we've, you know, they're they're both white. They're both, um, you know, born into you know fairly good, um, uh, you know. Uh, high economic background and and have good educations and whatnot. Um, so uh, honestly, I think they're not going to be as severely impacted by the healthcare system as um, as 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 somebody who's an immigrant or somebody who's who's black or somebody who has been born into a, a much lower economic status. And you know, I think health the, the, that's the patient population that healthcare you know 
is failing more than than others. And so my hope is that in the future we find some way to um, even just start talking about, let alone addressing some of these disparities and um, start doing right by all of our patients, um, not just you know the ones who can afford it or the ones who are born into privilege. Um, and I, I think that's the deepest shame of of healthcare is that that we've we failed you know large segments of our of our fellow humans. When you think back to med school, how much time do you think was spent in the curriculum across all the years of med school on teaching you about? I'm going to pick substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't, not, I mean, that's a hard question. I mean, you know, the first two years of med school, you know, are very science right. for me, you know, we're very science-based and, and, you know, I think we probably had an occasional lecture on various topics, so probably one or two on, on, you know, substance um, use um, or one or two on, you know, chronic pain or one or two on, you know, whatever, you know, kind of mm-hmm. other major issues that, that we end up seeing. And then, you know, obviously in the second couple of years, you you get that education as you're exposed to it in your clinical environment. So, you know, when I was on my neurology rotation, I had very little education on substance use versus when I was on my emergency medicine rotation, I had a lot of education on it. So a lot of it just had to do with exposure um, and, and whatnot. So I, I'd say I got as much education as I was exposed to. And, you know, in, in the emergency medicine rotation, for example, that was quite a bit. The reason I asked, I was, so I was talking with someone uh, this week about how much content is in med school curricula around LGBTQ populations. And they mentioned right. how little is in about substance use. And this is my, my own lens of privilege. I hadn't even given it any thought at all. I like I mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about it at all, and so I appreciate right. you answering. Yeah, that. But the, yeah, but the problem with that is, and, and I get that, and it's a very fair statement to say there's not a lot of education about substance use uh, disorder, or not a lot of education about um, LGBTQ health. The problem is, I mean, you're trying to teach the entire world of medicine in four years, so there's honestly not going to be a lot of education about any given sure. you know one topic. Um, in medical school. So I think it's it's a little unfair to say there's not a lot of education about, you know, this specific topic in med school because it's so broad. There's not a lot of education about anything. You know, that's the whole reason we do residency and, you know, really refine our practice and, and, and try to hone in on an education that is relevant to our day-to-day practice in those, those postgraduate years. I guess the piece, though, that I think it feels so different, and I hear what you're saying, like you can't, you can't fit everything into the curriculum, but you spend a lot of time in general. I'm not saying you, the specific you. I'm saying within medicine and nursing. Nursing is as guilty of this as medicine. There's a lot of time spent talking about a wide variety of diseases, illnesses, conditions that may affect a very small percentage of the population because they're important, right? The, those You want to be able to be prepared to diagnose and treat those. But there's, there's a significant portion of the population that may identify as LGBTQ. Um, and so it's, I think it's different than learning about conditions. It's we're graduating so many people who don't even know how to ask questions in a way that's open to someone sharing that they are trans or that they're bisexual. Yeah. And so that's the piece. I'm like, how do we, 
We've got to do a better job. And I don't know the answer. I agree with you completely, but I think that's more of a philosophical question of what med school is for than anything. That's true. So, you know, so I, I think, I think med school philosophically has been built to train anybody who needs to use a medical degree, including researchers, mm-hmm. you know, including, you know, bench scientists, including, um, you know, pathologists and, and psychiatrists and emergency medicine physicians. And so to try to create a generic, um, training program to train everybody when some of these people aren't even going to be patient facing you know there, there's a great deal of people who are just going to be you know scientists yeah, but then do we do a crappy people. job of training everyone like yeah. Yeah. do you know what i mean that's the, that's the answer yes yes i do think we do a crappy job training everyone because you are trying to create such a generic um program to to, to train everybody and so it, it becomes fairly vanilla and it becomes fairly you know, uh, purposeless. Hmm. But so yes, if we are trying to train clinicians, then absolutely we should focus on, um, you know, training to people on on dealing with um, LGBTQ health. Or talking or, about death. Like, how about that? Or talking about death, or stuff like that. But you know, again, you're trying to train the world, you know, on a world of information, and so you it, it's very hard to create a curriculum that broad for that breadth of a person. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I philosophically, I agree with you. The piece that's so tough when I think about end of life training, like a hundred, yeah. the one thing that a hundred percent of your patients will do at some point is die. Like I agree <laughs> there's gotta be room to talk about that. Um, yes, I agree with you. If you're training people to deal with patients, but some doctors don't even do it. Wow. That's you know, so, I mean, I, you know, I'm not defending medical training. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not hearing it that way at all. It's just, it's, I it's, hadn't it's, thought of it that right, way. Right. This is the reason we're in the situation we are. Now, if we as a society want to say, hey, medical school should be trained, you know, used exclusively or primarily for training clinicians, then I agree we could change a lot of the curriculum. Well, and, and the other thing is this yeah. idea that med school may be training like researchers. Right. It, but the... And maybe maybe your med school is different, but the average MD program, MDs don't come out with a broad understanding of, you know, sampling, statistics, research design and methods, unless they're doing an MD PhD. But we learn a lot about histology and I don't think a lot of clinicians do. I think we totally need to redo medicine, Josh. That's like what we need to do. I agree with you. I am on board. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. The, the basic communication piece, um, you know, I, I struggle with when I look at med school curricula and nursing school across the board, we seem to do a bad job talking about death and sex. The two things that a hundred percent, right. Um, and even patients who are celibate are sexual beings, but we don't talk about those things. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's just, you know, are two big taboos or what, but if we can't talk about two driving things that I mean, really sex as a motivator, you know, species alive and death, we avoid it. Honestly, I think you could make that same argument about a lot of different topics. Like we don't spend a lot of time in medical school talking about nutrition and yet we all eat and what we eat has a massive impact on us. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about racism, but race affects everybody, especially You know, so I think there are some massive, massive parts of life that are, you know, we don't talk about money. 
you know, in medical school, but money has a drastic impact on health, you know, and, and, and how to, you know, how we spend it and everything like that. And yeah, that is not a conversation we ever have. in medical. Yeah. I think we do need to completely redo <laughs> medical education because right. you've just touched on things that are massive drivers of, of health, of health and of people's lived experience of being human. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's depressing. Pollution. Um, yeah, it's like global warming. I mean, right? no, it's it's massive. But so I guess my follow up question is, what are the odds that you think? And I'm and I'm not just going to say medicine. I'm going to say medicine and all the health professions because we really are intertwined in, I think, inextricable ways. Like we can't we we can't radically change how one profession is um, educated without it affecting all the health professions. What's going to happen, what's, what's going to happen is if you have one profession that doesn't change, like, you know, I I think there's a lot of debate out there around, um, you know, for example, MDs or, or, or DOs, you know, physicians versus, Mm -hmm. um, advanced practice providers or, you know, um, you know, NPs or PAs is, you know, I think there's a lot of debate out there and there's a lot of protectionism among the doctors. It's awful. But frankly, if medical training can't adapt to make better clinicians that have a more direct impact on patients' lives in a meaningful way, then maybe medicine, you know, medical training for physicians needs to, to die, you know, and, and that's the way it all goes. If we can't adapt to meet the needs of our, of our patient population, then something else is going to fill that gap that can meet those needs. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, good riddance. If we're not taking adequate care of our patients in a, in a meaningful way, then we don't deserve the privilege of taking care of those patients. So we, we need to, we need to grow or we need to let somebody else take over. Every time that I see the somewhat less kind corners of med Twitter and nurse Twitter, like have their cage matches, um, you know, I'm, I'm always both stunned and not stunned when I see physicians say doctors take are educated twice as long. And then the NPs are saying our outcomes are the same. And it's like, why is no, why is right. no one looking at if it's twice as long and the outcomes are the same, either docs need to say, look, we're doing better on these other outcomes and start right. tracking those or acknowledge that it takes you right. twice as long to get as good as an NP. And so like, right. Right. It, and both disciplines are, they're profoundly different. They do profoundly different work. There's a value in both of them, but the the fighting over um, who should be better or top dog, and it's like this is you're having the wrong argument. Which is, can we do this more efficiently? I mean, I think I think the argument that the only argument that matters um, ever is what is right for the patients. Mm-hmm. You know? And 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 if you know if you can achieve. Like you said, if you can achieve the right outcomes through going through half the training or getting a different kind of degree or not getting any degree at all and just, you know, using a robot to do it, mm-hmm. you know, then you should do that. You know, I mean, if, if it's better for the patients, then do whatever's better for the patients. Um, and, you know, and if we're only tracking outcomes that can be carried out by a robot, we're right. tracking the wrong outcomes. Right. Exactly. Right. This was amazing, Josh. I am looking forward to seeing you roll out Medicine 2.0 in the next 10 years when you, you, got it. you re- got it. remake yeah. medical education and yeah. nursing education and all of yeah, it. The country survives. So, <laughs> exactly. Honestly, yeah. that, I mean, that looms over everything I do right now. And I had, I had a meeting today about um, with some people at a different hospital. I was like, oh, I would like to get my residents to rotate with you and you provide this valuable thing. 
assuming that there is a functioning country in the next six months or the next year. And frankly, that is a huge assumption that is looming over everything I do. And I know that's very depressing, but I mean, honestly, that no, is it's true. And it's, I mean, it's, it's in the back of my mind all the time. It's like, well, I'm planning to do this educational thing and I'm planning my career. I'm planning my retirement. I'm planning all these kinds of things, but it's like, I don't even know that I'm going to live in a functional society in the mm-hmm. next couple of years. And then, you know, well, and did we ever like, right. That, well, exactly. No, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, like it, I don't think it, I don't think it's functioned for a long time, but now that spillover is, you know, spilling onto groups that were traditionally shielded from the shit, pardon my French, by privilege. And so yeah. now the shit's everywhere. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, now we are in the same situation as a lot of our patients have been all along and we're saying, man, this, this is shitty. <laughs> yeah. And, and even in the midst of it, our patients are in worse but right. like are, are in even worse. I'm teaching health policy right now. And uh, we talk about politics a lot and we talk about policy and I'm trying to, I want to teach students how to talk about really challenging things openly and take a stand. And, uh, you know, I'm usually unafraid of that and it works fine. But as I was looking at what I, you know, the sequence of the semester we're covering politics the two weeks before and the week of the election. And I was like, Oh God. But you know, it is, it is what it is. And we have to, we have to look at it head on. Um, It's a, it's a scary time. And you know, the country's literally burning in different, (laughs) whether it's lightning. Right. Right. No, it's, um, that's unbelievable. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with me. And uh, how can folks find you on social media? Um, my Twitter handle, which is the main area that I engage in, is um, at J Mugle. So my first letter, last name. So it's at J M U G E L E. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Kevin. It's been very engaging and pleasant. I appreciate Take it. Care. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to M Dash, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For more information about the podcast, visit www.em-podcast.com.